0: This episode is brought to you by Australia Post.
1: We started a label. It didn't work out. I think we just had very misaligned goals in terms of what we wanted. I realized I could do quite a lot by myself and I just needed the self-confidence to just do it. I didn't need a partner, although it may be nice to have one.
0: Hey, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. We're your hosts, Caitlin Judd and Anna McKenzie, co-founders of Lady Brains, a digital and IRL club for female founders and founders to be. If you're smart, savvy, and ambitious, then Lady Brain, you are in the right place. Get ready for a dose of inspo, hard hitting truths, and actionable insights. Strap in. In this episode, we're chatting to Anna Huang, founder of Australian contemporary fashion label Anna Kwan. The brand epitomizes simplicity, elegance, and quiet luxury. In fact, you may know the label for its bread and butter item, the white button-down shirt. Anna has managed to reimagine and redefine this staple, and has people from right around the world coming back for it time and time again. Anna opens up in this rare interview about her transition from law to fashion, her struggle in the first few years with gaining traction in the Aussie market, and the bold move that she had to make next how her values have helped her hire the right people, and the important questions she keeps asking herself as she hits 10 years in business. Anna, welcome to the Lady Brains podcast. I feel like you have been the longest lady brain in waiting. We've been speaking to you about coming on the podcast for so long. So welcome. It's really nice to
1: have you here. Finally. Well, thanks for having me. And um, yeah, sorry, I've been dodging it for a while. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How we usually start is we take it back to the early days, which for you is now 10 years ago, a decade, which is huge. Um, you celebrated your 10 years this year and you know we'll definitely talk about that. But I would love for you to take me back to the beginning. You, like so many other founders, um, started out in law and discovered it wasn't your trajectory. It wasn't your path. Tell me about what happened and how you kind of slid into or made that transition into fashion.
1: I went to university and, you know, origin story, I, I, you know, I studied law but I also studied communication. So I thought perhaps I'd just get into writing and work as a writer instead, mainly because I wanted to do something where I could just meet lots of new people and do something interesting. I was just, you know, plodding along doing the degree for a while. It's five years. And then I think midway through, I kind of had a bit more of like an epiphany that it wasn't going to get away from me. I was really interested in clothing. So midway through studying a different course, I realized, oh, I probably will need to make a change at some point somehow, but I'm going to finish this course probably because I'm a little bit stubborn. I've already spent thousands of dollars on a step. Why not lose more money? Education's never wasted. But um, no, I just thought, look, I'll just finish it. Three years in deep, I've got like another two really to go. The practical legal training is inbuilt built into the course. So in another two years, I'm going to finish. In two years, I think in a whole scheme of things, it happens quite fast, faster than you think. So every time you think you've got a year or two left of something to go, it's actually not as much as much time as you think. Whilst I was studying around year three of my course, I decided, okay, well, maybe I need to research naively I just thought I'm going to go and go into fashion design but I had absolutely no idea how to do that at all which is a bit silly. I wrote a lot of letters to a lot of people to try to intern. I had this rejection folder in my inbox where I just add them all in and (laughs) I got rejected a lot and then I realized actually I probably will have to go and um, study which is essentially what I did incubation time of like having the extra two years to sort of plan and figure it out was really good because I wanted to study at fashion design studio and back in the day you had to have a portfolio and you also had to do a drawing and a design exam a sit-in exam and also then an interview to get into the course so I don't know how to draw didn't know how to draw (laughs) my design assistants probably think, oh, you probably still can't draw. But anyway, that's another story. (laughs) Rude. I don't understand your sketches. (laughs) Um, What is this sketch? There was some strict requirement and I didn't have the skill set to meet any of those requirements. But in my mind, I just have this naive idea. I'm going to
0: study fashion design and I'm going to be a designer. That's a bit dumb. It's <laughs> pretty dumb. I mean, look, not dumb. It's, I mean, it's impressive, but without pointing out the obvious, I mean, law and fashion are very, very different. I mean, what, I mean, do you remember what inspired you to even have that thought? Like, were you inherently creative and thought, yeah, yeah. Okay. This is like, this no, is just no. calling me. Like, why did you decide to make such a big change
1: it wasn't like I was creative and I couldn't sew either so that was you're like those people who say oh I grew up with my grandmother's dollies and I made dresses Mm. and no not me I also hate crafting so I'm not like somebody who likes to craft and make cushions and fascinators and I wasn't into it. All I can say in my defense is I've always liked clothing, specifically just clothing, not like anything else really, just clothing. I guess it's kind of odd, yeah. And I obviously couldn't draw, I couldn't sew, and then I just had it in my head. And the thing is, this has been sitting with me I don't know, even since childhood, that I always really liked clothes, that I always was interested in clothing, that I was always interested in design. I never did anything about it. I never studied textiles and design in high school. I never did anything remotely creative. I didn't study art. I did the complete opposite. I just thought, oh, now I should do it now. So Now's the time.
0: Now's the time um, while I'm in the middle of a time. law degree. Yeah, why well, not?
1: Well, the thing is it will just become too late, right? My boyfriend at the time who is now a husband said to me, you know what, you should like apply to design school straight after you finish this course because the money will get too good and like you'll just never do it. You'll just get a job as a lawyer and then you'll never apply and you'll never do it because the decision will be a lot harder because you'll make some good money in a year mm. or two and then you, don't, you won't want to do this anymore.
0: Mm. And I think it's def- that's a trap that so many people fall into, trap. right? You know, what mm-hmm. I mean, chasing the money over perhaps the passion or the vision for one's future.
1: It's common sense, though, because you think I'll make some money, and then I'll go study, and I'll be more secure. I'll be in a better financial position to study, which makes which makes absolute sense. It does in make a way. Sense. In, in a way, if you like, you know, but. I mean it was just better for me just to throw myself in there and just try so year 4 year 5 of my law degree and my journalism degree I just at night time I would just go to literally learn to draw classes <laughs>
0: <laughs> the creative, but it wasn't so creative. And learn how to, you know had to learn how to draw. I mean, I love that. I knew I had to learn how to draw because yeah. I
1: wasn't gonna pass that exam if I didn't know how to draw. You know, you have to actually put together a portfolio, and if you don't know how to draw, I don't know what you would put together. But I think the expectation was that it would have drawings in it, and then you'd have to sit a design and drawing exam under pressure. So you got a certain amount of time. They'd have some fabrics at the front, and then you just literally have to sketch a winter design, a summer design to prove that you knew what the difference between winter and summer. And then they'd give you a photocopy of something. And then you'd have to do like a photorealistic sketch in the exam room. And after that, you'd wait in line with another 250 applicants. You get interviewed about why you were wanting to do this course.
0: What did you say?
1: Oh, I didn't say very much, to be honest. <laughs> I, I remember not eating that day and I remember feeling like I was going to throw up because it was something I had wanted really badly. So, you know, it was
0: interesting. I mean, it's not recommended, but it is a good sign when you forget to do some of those basic health, those, you know, hygiene. Basic health things. Like yeah, eat like eat. Drink water. Yeah, because <laughs> you care so much and it's something that you, you know, deeply desire and you obviously, that was that was the moment for you you know,
1: sitting at nighttime doing these courses to get to this point where I would pass this exam. And I knew it was like the biggest obstacle was this interview if they didn't like me, or it was going to be this exam where they thought that my skills weren't sufficient to have any potential to study. So, and I'd never kind of been in that situation where it wasn't something I couldn't study for in that sort of way. Like everything else in life up to that point you could just study and kind of get away not get away with but like you just you just study at it or something and then you just you just get there whereas this was like maybe maybe not I do sometimes think what am I gonna do if I decide one day either this does work out or I decide I don't know but the thing is I don't know anything else I would want to do which is interesting like I'm just not sure if there's anything else that like I, I want to do. But at the same time, I also know that having a level of higher education, actually completing it allows me like a level of flexibility that if this didn't work out, even though it would not be ideal, like I could go and do something else. It might not even be law, but it just, um I think it just opens like quite a few doors. Yeah. As education always does.
0: The brand, I mean, tell me, you started it, as I said, 10 years ago, obviously you passed your exam, which was good. And you were able to start the brand, what did you have in mind? Like, what was the vision? Did you have a grand vision for it? Did, could you see 10 years down the track? Or was it like, you know what? I'm just going to start right here. What was the launch pad? There was no great plan,
1: actually. So I left design school and then I saved money for a year. And then I caught up with one of my girlfriends who I went to design school with. And people don't know this, but we started a label together. It died in the ass. We didn't get along, obviously. <laughs> but it was good because after that I realized I could do quite a lot by myself and I just needed the self-confidence to just do it I didn't need a partner although it may be nice to have one but yeah we started a label it didn't work out I think we just had very misaligned goals in terms of like what we wanted and in life generally so it just feels a lack of alignment I would say and then she went about and did her thing and then I felt Like I had put a lot of effort in and then I was kind of lost for a little bit, actually. So after we broke up, I kind of sat there for a little bit. I was like feeling sorry for myself and I wasn't sure what I was going to do, whether I could do a label by myself, whether I had the capacity to, like I just wasn't sure about anything. I sat on it for like another year or three quarters of a year. And then I decided I can do this and then I just started again and I changed the name of the label and just started designing a few things and I guess that's just what I did. But it wasn't like I started, you know, Anna Kwan and it was really successful and it was great or that even that was like the first label. We did another label. It was a good learning actually because – I started to realize I was capable of doing it. I just thought, you know, fashion has a lot of moving parts. It'd be just smarter to have somebody else to divide and conquer with. But you kind of need to have some complementary skill sets instead of the similar same skill sets to an extent. That's kind of how I started. And I'd have my day job and work in a barrister's chambers like two, three days a week. Obviously, it's taken a long time. It's taken ten years, probably because <laughs> I wasn't like, "Oh, this is my business plan and these are the goals and these are the sales targets and this is the quarterly, you know, check-in point, And this is where we need. it wasn't like that. It was just very born out of desire to be a designer and have an independent label, it's nothing inspiring here. I just didn't even think about what my overall vision for the business looks like. And people to this day interview me a lot and say, oh, what was the vision? And I was like, I didn't really have one. I just wanted to make stuff I could wear every day. Because at the time, a lot of clothing 10 years was all about occasion wear. And I was just sick of everything was a dress. I didn't feel like everything needed to be a dress and not everyone wants to wear a dress. And you're just going to get so much more value having you separate so you can mix and match together more often. So, I mean, I just, I wanted to do that. I knew that I wanted to do that. I didn't have any dreams of being like in every single department store or anything amazing like that. I didn't even have a dream about having my own online channel. I think like my biggest mistake was probably not thinking bigger and a bit more globally, particularly in the earlier days, and it's only taken the last few years for me to really think of a bit more of an overarching position that I want the brand to be in. It was just, I want to make clothes. Oh, maybe I'll be stocked in a local store in Sydney. Maybe I'll be in a a boutique. Like I wasn't thinking globally. I was just thinking very locally and just thinking more product-based. And Some people have these overarching dreams to make it big. I didn't. I just was like, oh, I'm just going to do this. It was, it's really naive. Like, it's just like dumb stuff. <laughs> it's really dumb stuff. But I think being a little bit more naive kind of got me through some of the harder parts, I think.
0: Everyone has their own rhythm and reason, you know, and especially in those early days, not everyone can have that vision. Maybe you don't have the capital, maybe you don't have the time, maybe you don't have the support. You know, there are so many reasons that is true. why that you perhaps need to start small to scale. But you eventually did get there and you did start to see a global market. What was the turning point? Did you have a mentor? Was there a conversation? Was it just, you know what, my confidence is growing here. My business is growing here. I can see Anaquan on the big stage and what did you do when you realized that moment? It was very like piece by piece. It took me a very long time to
1: think, oh, this can be a thing. And actually it was because the brand wasn't that well received, I would say, year three. I kind of like slowly been working it on like year one. I kind of like started halfway through the year, made like a very small collection Just got some PR, monthly retainer, didn't do very much, didn't sell anything. Year two, I started like expanding a little bit more, making the collection a bit more substantive, investing in doing like a photo shoot. And then it was about year three when I realized I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm not getting the traction at home. In my mind, I was like, the Australian market is not my market. They're not seeing what I'm seeing. Maybe it's like my taste level is different and it's not like this is not the market for these clothes. So then like, because at the same time that was happening and I was getting obviously a lot of rejections and people weren't really like, I wasn't really stocked anywhere. And I was just like, it was like probably the most stupid thing to do. Just keep pouring my part-time cash into this. Anyway, when I think about it, I was like, it's kind of stupid, but I just still did it anyway. And I just kept doing it, which is really funny. Because so, then what happened was I would get like these emails from people who were like these buyers from overseas and they're like where's your Paris showroom i want to come over i'd like to make an appointment this season and i was like is this real is this like a hoax like what is this, par- <laughs> this is what is what is this what is this like who is this person and if this person is real like but they're overseas and in my mind i was like i don't know anything about international like legit like i don't know i have a DHL account that's it but how am i going to do this like i don't know i wasn't feeling much success back home so i was just like well, I've got nothing else left to lose. Maybe what this brand is is it's an international business. It's not local. It's local in origin, but it's more of an international business. But I didn't even think of a big international business. I was just like, it's just an international business, and it has a bit more of an international flavor to it, to its aesthetic, and maybe that's where it's actually sitting. And this is why I'm not getting the traction back home. So then what I did was, and I was just like, okay, I'm just gonna like, I'm gonna ask a few questions, ask a few people how to do this Paris showroom business, and then. I started just going over every season. And at that stage, I'd never been to Europe in my life. So what like, <laughs> dumb things can I do? I don't know. they like naive dumb things. I was like, but I'm just going to go to Paris and um, I'm just going to hire an Airbnb and I'm just going to set up some, I'm going to buy some rails and I'm just going to set them up and I'm just going to have like the big buyer from X department store can come in and have a look at my stuff, I guess.
0: I mean, this is not usually how it's done, is it? No, no. Yeah, no,
1: but they were interested. They were the only people who were interested. Nobody back home was interested. So I was just like, hey, I'm just going to go where people are interested. I didn't know how people sold on a wholesale level. Like I didn't know internationally, okay, well you go to Paris, New York market and you know you're you're in a showroom, a multi-brand showroom and you get introduced to these buyers or they come and make appointments and you have showroom fit models and you know they view your collection ahead of time and they shop the season two seasons ahead or something like nobody told me that. I never learned that in design school. So it was like I didn't know how to merchandise. I didn't understand like how to hang stuff up nicely. But then, you know, I ended up just doing it, just airbnb it. And then until I, like my Airbnbs got cancelled oh, last God. minute, then I realised actually you do need to be in a showroom because it's safety. It's a legitimate, you know, space and you may get also cross-pollination of like other buyers who might see your stuff and come over.
0: What happened when the Airbnb got cancelled? <laughs> Sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, it was actually,
1: 2017. So the year after, I think I had like, so it was like Pride Week, Men's Swimwear, Couture, Swim Week. So all the all hotels are booked out essentially. And then like the guy who was meant to let me in and give me the keys, the owner, I messaged him to say, oh, I'm going to be on a flight. I'll be there in 24 hours. And then just as a touching base, he's like, oh, I forgot, you know, that you were coming, that I had this booking. I sold the apartment already. Great. Thank you. So just before I was like flying over, I then find out. I get there and I'm not answering doorbell, not answering any phone calls, nothing. And it's like 35 degrees out in June. Everything is booked out. I've got like 2% battery left or something crazy like that. I was just like, I'm pretty stuffed. I don't know what I'm going to do about these appointments because now I can't show in this room. So I'm kind of like in this space. I'm kind of stuffed. I managed to actually get an agent at that time in Hong Kong. It's interesting because I could never get an agent in Australia. Like no one wanted to represent me to sell my goods. So I had to do it myself. But I did get managed to get an agent in Hong Kong and she was coming to Paris. She also sold in other showrooms. So I messaged her straight away and I said, I'm stuffed. Is there, like, somewhere I can show? Do you know of another place? Because, like, I don't know where we're going to take these appointments. And she's like, oh, I know another showroom. Let me just check with them to see if they have any extra space because maybe you could just set up shop upstairs there. And luckily they did have some space because the other thing is it's obviously broken up by space right so if it's the limitation is if there's no space in that showroom you also cannot be there no matter how desirable you might be like you you just can't show there so they had a space so that was kind of like my introduction into being in like a, a like a proper multi-brand showroom it took a airbnb getting cancelled because it was so busy that weekend and everything was basically sold out i couldn't get any continuous showroom space so i
0: had to move uh, hotels three times. This is the glamorous side, right? Of, of owning your own business and hustling. What came out of that? What did Paris eventually mean to you and the business?
1: It was good. I mean, in the sense that I was in a multi-brand space and like I started to have a bit more of an appreciation of why people do it this way and not my way. Um, not to say that my way is bad because brands still do it and it's a formula that works because buyers aren't bombarded by 500 brands they don't care about that they don't want to see. They just want to see the one brand they're buying from. It was, for me, like, the biggest learning was probably understanding merchandising. It sounds kind of stupid, but, like, we never really learnt merchandising in design school. And even, like merchandising design in the sense that people are only going to buy things that look good on a rail. So if you're as a collection, all the pieces together don't look good on a rail, or there doesn't seem to be enough variety, which makes things look good on a rail, then people are not going to, like, that's the test. You go into a store, you've got to walk up to a rail and have a look at something. If you're not going to walk up to it to even begin with, to explore it, then you're not going to get a sale. Someone's gotta want to be interested to walk up to your right and nobody said nobody said that. Nobody said, Okay, you need to be thinking about your design in terms of like a merchandising perspective, if it's gotta have hanger appeal or if it looks terrible on hanging up and it Like, it also needs to look like what the customer thinks they're going to be putting on. And if it looks completely different from that or it's too hard, then they're not going to try. Like, people don't tell you these things. So then, I mean, it was really good because even to this day, like, when we design things in the studio and we're putting it together, I'll, like, design and make, like, three or four pieces. And then I'll put it on a rail and I'll see how it looks together before I add more pieces, then I know what's missing. Is it a top? Is it a pant? Is it a skirt? Like in which color? Like I, I will then know what's missing or do I need something brighter to liven up this rail? Like I'm thinking about it now, but nobody taught me that. So, I mean, it's, it sounds really obvious, but I wasn't like, you know, no store planner here. So, yeah.
0: No, and I love that. And and I'm so glad that you just shared that, how You start your creative process by actually visualizing it and seeing it on the rack and then adding to the collection. Is that how you approach every season, every collection? That's part of it.
1: There's also silhouettes and things that I work on. I call it unfinished business. I think as a designer, you're always trying to add more things. Then you get a cutoff date and it's like, oh no, that's it. Like That's all you stop for now pens down or scissors down you've got to move on to like shooting that collection selling that collection like you can't just keep making stuff forever so there's always stuff I want to add or stuff that didn't quite work out and I'm trying to work out design wise what makes it successful and what makes it not successful and how do I get to that point part of the process is that thinking about pulling out all the things we tried out that were unsuccessful and working out what tweaks Maybe they're styles that we cancelled. Maybe they're styles we sold anyway. Or maybe we thought they should have had like a bigger reception and then didn't get a huge buy-in. But it's just pulling out all those pieces and having a look and thinking about like what will it take to make this piece more successful? Like is it the colour? Is it fabrication? Is it the detail? Like is it the cut? Is it like a slight tweak in the fit? So like the Anne shirt, which is like our like signature best-selling shirt that kind of went viral when I started, that was a different shirt two seasons before it became a thing. And I pulled out that shirt and I just kept looking at it. And I was like, what is going on with this shirt? Like, I think the proportions are amazing. Like, they're different. They're offering something different to the customer. Like, why is it unsuccessful? Like, I thought about it. And then I then reworked it, changed the fabrication, added a trim, and then added also a, a personalization option for people so that they could personalize. And then it, it became a thing. But you don't have to get an idea and just like throw it out throw it away. Just because it wasn't successful first doesn't mean it can't be reworked as well. You just I think you just have to be okay with bringing it back, admit that like maybe it wasn't as great as you thought it was going to be, and then re-examining it in a bit more of an objective manner and having some distance and saying, okay, well, what is it that's not Successful about this approach or this thing?
0: Oh, such a great approach, and so similar to really when you think about it, like the lean startup methodology. You're building something and you're tweaking, you're iterating. Like you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know? Yeah, and no, you, and, and you and don't have
1: to reinvent the wheel. You don't. And also, yeah, you don't. And, and and also because it was just me at the time, like I don't have time to patent, make, cut, and resample everything and create something completely different every season over. Being time poor, just being me, like. I just had to really look at it and think, okay, well, how am I going to make this thing like or is this idea do I need to completely abandon this idea? But most of the time, I don't find that like you have to abandon completely everything
0: either. You mentioned the white shirt. I mean, you know you have become the brand is synonymous with this classy, crispy, beautiful, tailored shirt that has evolved you know in certain ways. I mean we even had a really beautiful special 10-year anniversary one that uh, is hanging in my wardrobe. That focus on quality and craftsmanship, I imagine when I think about like designs in a collection, is it similar to how you would approach a brand? Like you have certain constraints and guidelines for what the Anaquan aesthetic looks like. Is there truth to that? Does that constrain your creativity in any way or is it helpful in staying true to the origins of the brand? Well,
1: you can't be everything to everybody, right? So, I think like the great thing about not having heaps of money is startup capital.
0: There's a benefit to that. There, yeah? is. there
1: is There is. actually. I think there is. It's a blessing in disguise to an extent. Like obviously, it has its limitations. Like you grow a lot slower and blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, if you do make a mistake in many is it it's it's not going to cost you as much as if you had millions of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars and secondly I also think having some constraints also mean that you have to be more creative like you kind of have to be more that's kind of what it is right we've all seen brands that are like trying to be everything to everyone and and, and the reality is there will be certain parts of certain markets that you will alienate in doing what you do. Because this is something that I think, I don't know if it's just special fashion, but it is a part of it in that like, it's very democratic. Everyone has an opinion on it. And everybody has something, it's it's very unique to the person, whether they say they don't care about it. It's a feeling, it's a thing. Nobody really says, I don't have an opinion either way, because you put on clothes every day. To an extent, you have some sort of opinion because you're wearing something. You know, that's a thing. But, yeah, I, I would say having constraints is a good thing. Having some financial personnel and those, it's not a bad thing to an extent. There's obviously, when I look back, I think, oh, you know, maybe I could have grown more if I had more money to do XYZ. But then I also think, no, I would have done something really dumb and lost a lot of money. So at least, like, the mistakes that I did make, and I still make mistakes, is that, like, you know, hopefully they're not as big and that they're not as expensive. Like, you can come back
0: from them. Yeah, true creativity definitely comes from constraint and so many guests have echoed that sentiment. You mentioned that Australia was slow to kind of take up the design and the aesthetic and, and fall in love with Anna Kwan because perhaps you're... Again, aesthetic was quite unusual or different for this market. I think I just started with one product, and I think people were like, What
1: is this? What are you doing? Like, they just weren't used to that. They're probably like, What are these shirts? I think they're probably used to this format where I think as a brand, like people, like other labels, bring out a whole slew of designs. And I did have a few other designs, but it was mainly centered around and supporting this shirt. So I think it was different because <laughs> I think when I think about when when we're thinking and talking about oh what did you do differently I I would probably say I didn't have a lot of money and I made most of the items myself pretty much but I also looked at what I thought I had the most what I felt had the most opportunity I realized very early on making all these other products and offering all these other skus was very it was a very expensive activity I did have a conversation with my. PR agent at the time, where I said to her, I'm going to create, and she kind of laughed at me, which is funny now. (laughs) I think she thought I was it was wildly crazy. And this is before I went to Paris where I did anything special, before I dressed Kendall Jenner or anything like that. Before I did anything, I just said to her, and I had done like one, maybe two seasons of a collection, and I was feeling like, oh, it's just so much work and there's just not a lot of opportunity here. And I just said, basically, I identified now what I understand it to be, a core product. I decided this is, and I said to her, this is going to be my bread and butter product and people are going to come to me for this product. I'm going to create this evergreen product and people are going to come to me and they're going to buy this shirt off me. She thought I was crazy, I think. She was just was like, who's going to buy a $300 shirt, like, firstly, and why would they buy it from you?
0: talk about building the brand. I mean, we, we had a, a chat earlier before this call. You were speaking about f- kind of building it in terms of f- formulas. And I kind of want to dive into that because I haven't really heard that concept.
1: I feel like people have a formula-ish, especially today, how it would happen. You get Shopify, you set up a Shopify store, you do a photo shoot, you create content. You put money into ad spend. I feel like there's definitely more of a formula than when I started. It was obviously before you could spend money on Facebook ads. Facebook wasn't monetized at the time. Instagram was relatively new. So, paid partnerships were in their infancy, I would say. It was like circa 2013. So, it wasn't like a big thing. But I feel like these days there's definitely like this formula of like, get these products or I'm going to make these products offshore and then I'm going to shoot them and then. I'm going to put money into this and then do that. And then it's just going to generate a brand and create a brand and an income. I don't know, outside looking in. For some products, I think it does a tried and tested formula that it can work for to an extent. I think for like, if you want to be an independent label, I think if you want to create an independent label, it's a little bit more of a unique beast in that there's like a part of you and it sounds corny but there's like a part of you you kind of have to put out there for people to understand and see it's not you can white label a whole bunch of stuff and then create a brand and then people go oh okay I get it now I understand I I love this brand and this lifestyle I think people also they know they can smell a fake a mile away they also know when you're being disingenuous you have to give customers a bit more credit than that I just kind of try to stick to, okay, well, what, who do I think this customer is and what is the brand aesthetic? I'm not saying we don't evolve, we still evolve from that and we still surprise customers of where we can take that aesthetic and that light, that perspective. But I don't think there's this complete hard and fast rule where you can follow a formula, get marketing out there, get creative out there and just throw it out there and expect, um, you know, for it to generate an income fashion particularly independent fashion it's like me doing that drawing exam like or doing that interview they don't like you doesn't work or people don't vibe it it doesn't work and like it was the first time in my life and this is the same thing with fashion like sometimes you can work and try as hard as you want to try but If people don't want it, they don't want it. Probably couldn't even tell you why they don't want it. They probably go, oh, I'm trying to think about like rejections I've had from stores in the past. (laughs) People don't want it. They don't want it. They just go, oh, we already have that covered or um, we're still reviewing brands from season to season and we'll come back to you. Or, you know, it's just they don't want it because it hasn't hit that part of them yet. People discount the fact that there's a level Of just creativity but like fashion has to speak to people so they need to see something about what you're doing and then relate it back to them that makes sense to them. That touches a personal side of them, whether it's the fit or they feel it's flattering or on that sort of like more superficial level, or whether it sparks a memory and it, re- it reminds them of something or the color, the cut, or an event, it triggers something in them. But you know, it's, it's something like it's an emotional feeling. So, whether someone, so that's why I say people like something or they hate something, like they have an opinion, and fashion's very democratic about that.
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so emotive. And I can think back to, you know, key milestones in my life and remember what I was wearing, you You know, more than anything, more than the conversation that was being had, you know, where I was, it's like, what was I wearing at that time? And you can just, you remember it so clearly and, and vividly. And it's also why it's so hard for people to let go of certain items because it does bring back those beautiful memories. Do you think that the success of say, you know, an independent fashion label does rely on the founder or the head creative to put themselves into that brand in that sprinkle of magic? Like, do you feel like you're very much in the Anaquan brand? And do you think that that comes down to the success of the label? I mentioned that I
1: had this other brand with this person and, like, I failed dramatically and obviously the company was still registered and at that point I had sought some advice The PR agents at the time said to me, you need to change the name because people won't understand this as well. It's not a good storyteller. And they said people relate more to people than to a brand that just has some, you know, meaning. Like people, if it's a name that they can pronounce, they can understand, they relate better to it. So then I went and changed the name. It took me some time to sit with it and then think it through very carefully. And then because it was effort on my part and I like, you know, spent some money on some stationery and some things and I was just like, oh, I don't want to change this too much trouble. But actually to an extent they are right. I think a label, I, I think that like um, I always say the brand is not exactly me per se. It's a type of customer. So, as a designer, I think my job is if you go ask me to go design floral, something completely different that's not an quite like, go design floral evening wear with flounces and, and lots of colorful prints. Like, it's my job. I'm going to go out and do it. Like, I'm going to do that thing that I was asked to do because that's just like my job. Having said that, like having your own designer found label, yeah, it is kind of personal, but at the same time, I can also, see the nuances, that there are levels of customers. There are things that I designed that I wouldn't wear and there are things that I would absolutely wear. But then I also know that's my type of customer, that there are layers to that customer and this is some of the things they wear and this is like me. I, I, I You know, you rarely see me in a dress. I design many dresses, but I don't always wear, but I can appreciate a dress because it's my job.
0: So then who is the Anaquan customer? As you said, you're kind of designing for more than just yourself. I mean, you're very much in the brand, but there is someone like how who is she i guess as in relation to the anachron brand universe are you designing do you have one that one specific person in mind or is it many many people i would probably say
1: it's more like a a bit of a lifestyle and there are many ages to it although i would say You can't try to please everybody because I think you kind of dilute the brand. I think it's about having a sense of purpose and simplicity and confidence in how you want to dress and be. Like you wear the clothes, clothes don't wear you. And I think like I've met like many people in my life who have changed the style aesthetic when they've come to this realization that having less is more having better quality things is better that there's price per wear that they can simplify their lives that there's like I think part of it for me was also like there's a lot of decision making that happens in your life and sometimes like having more things to make decisions about it's difficult already you know what I mean like simplifying your life in a way like simplifying your wardrobe we also design evening wear as well but we design things which are timeless we design everyday clothing a lot that's like kind of what I've known for like doing separates and things that people wear over and over again after COVID and everything. There's more so now that people are thinking about things that they're going to, pants or shirts or just staple items are going to, like there's so many brands out there now. I'm like, I'm this minimalist brand that does basics and core or, you know, this is like what I'm talking about, this formula. It's not to say that people don't want design. I think people still want design. It just needs to be designed in a clever way that speaks quietly. And I think that there is that customer and it's not without trying to limit myself so much I think that you kind of like you appreciate at a young age as a woman like you buy things which are affordable and accessible to you as you grow older you tend to not always but you tend to get a job you get a taste of money you know your friends are like you're starting to leave university you get more disposal income you start being exposed to more things and you start seeing more things and you you start like getting more curious about quality and I've had friends who uh, have been lawyers and like would used to like when there were students buy things for the weekend and then now they're like oh now I now I get it now I understand I don't need to have like 10 new things that I'm only going to wear once in my wardrobe and then have nothing to wear
0: as you said it's not only that realization that okay you know wearing good quality pieces feels nice but it's also so much better for the environment, and you know, yeah, I think yeah, there's, there's that too. There's that too. I mean that, uh, and you know, like I think it needs to be called out because you grow up, but you also your curiosity does grow, but also your awareness, right? In yeah, in you what, do. You what, what does, a person. you and grow then as a yeah, person? Your world, your world view starts changing. You become yeah, you become
1: a bit more informed, and you know, you're not stuck in the bubble of being a child. I think complication happens in life, and you're like you feel like you also have to. You're overwhelmed by like because so much coming out there for you. Coming at you all the time more than we realize, um, more than say ten years ago, more than say we didn't have mobile phones growing up. I mean, my dad had a mobile phone actually circa 1995, but it was a brick, and he was like one of the first yes, people to same, own one. My
0: dad too, yes, yeah.
1: <laughs> but like it was, it was not a thing. There's so much coming at you these days. But my point is that like people are more accepting of not slowing down, or you kind of is it slower yeah. fashion, but also in investment dressing. They're much more like acceptable of like accepting of it now than i would say before or about mixing and matching and normalizing re-wearing i think it should be normalized there's lots of brands these days saying this is our niche this is we're doing minimal we're doing core we're doing basic but i also want to point out like with my brand i don't think it's about being a basic bitch or anything per se
0: it's definitely not
1: i think people still want to feel sophisticated and it's not about wearing a basic t-shirt that has zero design maybe the designs are quieter and they just last you a lot longer And then sometimes the clothes are about like, and one of my teachers at design school said it so well, it's like, maybe it's like, you have an item of clothing and it has like, but you're the only person that knows the secret. Like you're the only person that knows it's got like a spare pocket on the inside or this or that or this or the other detail. And it's more about you. It's not about what other people are seeing. So that's why I kind of say it's for like the more confident person to wear because they're not trying to say anything to anybody else,
0: really. Ethical fashion, sustainability and, you know, the impact that it has on this planet. You can't turn on the news without seeing horrifying like images of of our country Europe at the moment's on fire there are fast fashion chains that are getting away with greenwashing and I mean I don't think you have to name names but everybody knows everyone knows everybody knows everyone knows I mean what would you say to that I mean especially as it's not your responsibility right I mean well is it It I guess the question is your is it your responsibility as an independent to educate your customers and your consumers? Or is it really, again, should we be putting it back into the hands of these huge fast fashion chains?
1: My take is if you're living on this planet, you have a responsibility. You're living, you're breathing, you're using the resources. This is interesting because I've been working on I think I mentioned before that I've been working on my brand book. It's just been in in the pipeline for ages. And I was talking to my team and I was like, do I need to tell people? It's like telling people to brush. Like I get really annoyed because I'm like, is it like really telling people to go brush their teeth or something? Like everyone should be doing it. Like why should I say Adequan is a sustainable brand, blah blah. Or you know, like, why do I have to say prove to people that we're doing something? Because I kind of think, well, if you were number one, if you're in business, and you wanted to make money and ha- and have a living and have a job in the next, you know, if you you kind of would have to like try to be sustainable. And I think the important word here is probably the word try. You can't perfectly do it in every single facet of the chain, but you have to work towards something better and be a better version of what it is that you're trying to do like having sustainability credentials like there's so many brands out there and their whole identity is wrapped around this putting their hooks into I'm sustainable that's why you should buy me as opposed to I'm a the whole point of people getting into design like getting into clothing in the first place which is you know I create nice clothing I'm also striving towards I'm working towards being a much more sustainable brand. Everybody has a responsibility. I am a little bit annoyed that there are brands out there that like their whole identity is is just pitted in this this like sitting in I'm sustainable. And I feel like that kind of opens yourself up to a lot of greenwashing about like who's better, who's more perfect? And I kind of think, well, there's definitely ways and means in which we can all do things. You're right. Like I take it for granted that I'm like Duh, linen is much more sustainable fiber. Cotton uses a lot of water. Like, I know those things. We merchandise our tags and whenever we are choosing something that's like, oh, we're using our recycled water bottles, whatever, in our wool suiting, we tell people. But I never like get up on my soapbox and go, oh, my God, aren't I amazing? Give me a gold star because I kind of think this is your responsibility and your job so why should you you be getting a gold star to be doing something you should be trying to do anyway? That's my take but I also understand that there's obviously a a lot of people – And I've had the benefit of like spending, I don't know, a whole half year studying fabric and fibre, just purely just studying fabric and fibres. Like I'm like that's a reconstituted cellulose, that does this, this does that, this has like, this reuses this material and this waste material, this uses more dye, this uses more more like like I know those things, and I, I I sometimes forget that people don't and to be a lot more compassionate and ki- and a bit more understanding and kinder, we do put those tags in, we do tell people, but I want to do it in my way, which is a bit more of a quiet way rather than saying, "Oh, we're so amazing,
0: yeah. I appreciate that.
1: We will be adding this section to our website now that the brand book's been signed off on Friday. You.
0: But oh my god,
1: <laughs> it's literally been the monkey on my back. Doing that exercise made me really think and and go back to okay, what are the brand values at the ten year point? Like I can I have the resources to get somebody to help me articulate, i.e., a copywriter, the resources to communicate to people what the brand is about. Then if I blah, 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 my 2 a.m. speak on Shopify on the website, doing my own website or something, you know. But yeah, no, it does. Like 10 years, you kind of start thinking there comes a bit of a reckoning when you have to decide kind of like what sort of brand you want to be. You're not completely mature. There are definitely signs of maturity in the organization. There's a bit more structure. There's a few more standard operating procedures. It's kind of one of those points in time where you can really lose your way, I think, and I felt like during the pandemic, it was a bit of an interesting time frame. I felt like doing the brand book helped me and made me think about what the brand was about and coming back to it a lot more than feeling like, because the natural thing that people expect you to do is you get some small taste of success and then you go gangbusters and you go create a thousand SKUs and just five, you start going crazy. You start doing, you go, you're everywhere. You're doing everything. Maybe that's not what's needed and maybe that's not what you want to do and
0: that's fine too. In those 10 years you've kind of come back to this brand book like what's in there? Like what's the evolution? Is it an evolution or is it more of a refresh or just coming back to your roots?
1: Things which are in my head are put on paper and because you know there's more than just me having a way in which to communicate to other people internally or people externally it's obviously got like things like internal things for me are like company values which are internal to the brand and really comes to like how we build up our team and hiring and what sort of values I look for in people that I work with and what kind of work environment I want to be in.
0: What are some of them?
1: Number one is probably teamwork And I think it comes down to, because it's such a team sport, like everyone relies on everybody else in fashion, whether it's like the person who is designing something to cutting to production, to someone who's marketing it, it really relies on everybody communicating and being part of a bigger team. It's such a team sport that it's never just like one person. It's not me coming up with all the great ideas and doing a huge marketing rollout and production rollout and it just sells itself. Like it's just, it's not just me. This is the thing, especially at this stage, like, you know, I'd die if it was just me but you know that's part of it the second part of it I always say teamwork is really important I really mean it because if people are not working as a well-oiled machine together in a synchronicity it really shows like if people are not departments are not communicating collaboration I understand I don't know everything I don't need to know everything I don't have to be the smartest. I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. And actually being open, like letting us, like setting aside your ego and understanding another person's perspective. Maybe they have a really good, fresh perspective on how to solve a problem. I always think collaboration is like a really important one working in law and and particularly litigation and in the barrister's chambers really helped me understand that there was always two sides to a story or two ways you can argue something and both were just as equally valid to an extent of course. That really helped me understand things like and also give people benefit of doubt and also understand there's lots of ways to look at different problems and things or just just generally like every day. So collaboration is a big one and the last one is excellence and I always say excellence because I think it really speaks to people that like you want to be doing something you really like and when when you're really passionate about something you really like doing something and you like the job that you're in you know you have pride in your work and you want to do the best job that you can do no matter what it is whether it's packing an e-commerce order writing a note to a customer packing you know a sample loan you want to do the best that you can do surely I actually say this to people, which I find scares the shit out of them sometimes. So like if we get like somebody who comes on, I always tell people if they don't like it here. There's a probationary period. If I don't like them, I'm going to ask them to leave. If you don't like it, you can leave too. I mean that in the nicest way. Like, I, I now say it because I kind of think people feel like they're trapped to stay somewhere and that they're stuck. There's hard decisions you have to make. You decide what you want to do because you have agency and people forget that they have agency and that's why they... People externalize blame for things that happen to them because they don't recognize their own sense of agency.
0: Oh, tell me that is not a quotable quote. That is a truth bomb right there. It's so true. So true. So easy to forget. So easy to also just slip into that kind of victim mentality and mindset. And I also, I really actually appreciate the fact that you say that to people upon interview because you're right. You know, it's, it's a huge moment going and getting a new job and working somewhere new and you do feel like oh my god this is it I'm here I'm here forever I'm here. yeah and and and, right. and and you know there are times where you're like oh this is actually not it but I'm just gonna stay and I don't want to let people down and this that and the other so just kind of calling that out at the start is almost like yeah. a little bit of a relief right it's like cool like we want this to work but if it doesn't no hard feelings
1: Oh, I even say things to them. Like, for example, I, I said I don't take it personally. I just say mm. even if you decide you don't like me or you don't like the way the organizations run or maybe, like, you don't like the commute. I don't mm. know. Maybe you don't <laughs> like... I, mean, I don't know. Maybe you don't like your work so. I
0: don't know. Maybe because you don't maybe- like the colour of the walls in this office. And I'm sorry about it. Yeah.
1: Maybe the coffee place <laughs> downstairs doesn't have enough lunch offerings. I don't know. But at the same time, if you don't like it, like you can leave. We're taking opportunities from people who might really want to do this and something that you might, deign and you might see as very ordinary. And, you know, they might get really excited about. And I also kind of think, well, you're also taking yourself away from the possibility that you could be happier.
0: Yeah. Oh, gosh. So many good ones. I love. Thank you for sharing those values, those internal values. They're amazing. So you celebrated 10 years this, this year. Um, we had a beautiful, intimate dinner. And, and what I love so much about the Anaquan brand and what you bring to the brand is that sense of just, oh, it's like warmth, family, honesty, simplicity. It's really quite special being fortunate to, to watch your journey, be part of it, be invited to some beautiful events do you take stock? Do you do you have time? Have you sat with it? Have you gone, Yeah, okay, I have created something pretty good? Or are you just like, All right, you know, what's the future look like for me?
1: Oh, honestly, I'm probably a bit more like the set the latter. I'm always like, Okay, what's next? I'm grateful. I get it like exists for ten years and I get to do something I wanted to do and I get to do something that like now for me is generating an income. I'm kind of always on to the next thing. I I like I said, I just have like this personality where I get really bored really quickly. And I think people forget that when we design, we make clothes and we do fashion, it's like it's like what you're seeing out now, like the new collection that's come out now was something that we shot in like, you know, at the end of January. So something you see in July now, something we shot in January and February, but was developed over like October, November, December last year. So for me, it feels like a very long time in my mind when I'm looking at something and then I'm like, oh, oh there's all these other things I want to do that get me excited because when I look around, I'm like, okay, it's actually pretty amazing all the wild stuff that has happened over the years. But just thinking, oh, it's actually really nice to have like, you know, a team to have structure and to be able to share that with other people and also to employ people who get to, you know, design clothing. We're still developing things in, people would say, an old-fashioned sort of way where we're like thinking about ideas and we're draping ideas in the studio and we get to make things. And I don't think that there 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 will be like very many studios still doing that And even doing that now, there's a handful, but people like are not really doing that as much anymore. But I think it's nice because I get to practice what they were trained to do. And I get to give people that opportunity to work, like to work on something a bit more independently. And they also get to have an opinion whether they think something looks ugly (laughs) or not,
0: (laughs) I mean, I can't, I can't possibly imagine anything ugly coming out of it. Oh, Australia.
1: we do, we do, oh. we do. But I always, I always laugh at it because I always say to people, don't be, I always say, you know, don't be afraid of making something that is going to be ugly or that isn't going to work the first time round. mm because you fix because, it. Yeah. So you fix it. Like just, you just, and, and for I think with someone a super junior, they're afraid of making mistakes or making something ugly or, you know, something that
0: doesn't work. But I'm just like, how else is it going to get better? Like, I, I don't know. What actually is next for the brand? Where are you going? Because after 10 years, I mean, do you have to reset the strategy? You know, you're responding to kind of the current economic climate. Like what's happening from here on out? For the well, brand,
1: you know, I I think you pass through that like you're a bit of, you're in a kind of like the double digits. You're in a bit of an awkward adolescence. You're not emerging. You're there. You've existed for a while, and I think it's like the the time when you kind of um, solidify your values, um, what you're there for, what the brand is about. I, like like I say to quite a few people, it's a bit of a reckoning in terms of thinking a bit bit more on a deeper level about it. I'm not trying to be too philosophical, but yeah, like, you know, you you go to work, you do something, the brand exists and you have to have a reason for it beyond just, okay, I want to put some nice clothes out there and make a living from it. Like, I think there's lots of brands that like make clothes that make great, that like design clothes. And I think I'm also thinking that, you know, the brand has, you want it to have um, a point of difference. And I think always coming back to that and, and coming back to, like, your your North Star, your values, like, I think that helps. I think that if you don't have that, it's very easy to just continue on for another 10 years and get a, bit, a little bit lost in the mire a little bit. And it's just, you only get to live for so long. Not to be, not to be, <laughs> not, not to
0: be, sorry, <laughs> not to be, such a such a great note to lead, to end the podcast on, yeah. um, You know, like okay, yeah, life's
1: really short, and, and my point is like I didn't I didn't go quit, you know, working in a much more highly remunerative, remunerative career path to be like working in a job that I didn't enjoy doing that I didn't believe in having a like you know what I mean if I wanted to do that I can go do something else so for me it's always like I'm always self-questioning all the time like do I enjoy this is this what I want is this is this still serving something is this still serving customers Is this still something I don't know I think those are important questions to ask like there's lots of brands putting out stuff out there you know there's a lot of stuff and um, I think the stuff you want to put out needs to be somewhat meaningful a little bit more meaningful than just being just stuff. Life's so short, like you're gonna die one day. You're gonna <laughs> It sounds very morbid, but I always like I always I sad not sadly, but I always bring it back to like what my obituary will kinda of be like. No one's gonna really remember you, particularly for the work you did. They're just gonna remember you for like, you know, how you made them feel.
0: Mm, such a powerful one. Isn't <laughs> Sorry, it? a little bit morbid so true.
1: but you know. Yeah, a
0: little bit morbid, little bit morbid but that's okay. I mean I think it's a good way to to live your life. I was speaking to um a mentor yesterday and he said I exist and and everything that I do all day every day is to ensure that you know people are happy that I'm that I'm making this world a little bit better by making them feel people feel good and he's like if if at the end of the day you know at my funeral that's what people say that I left them feeling good then then my job is done. So um, I, I think it's a nice way to live your life um, and something to Yeah, work no, I, I
1: agree with that. Yeah, not to get too philosophical, like I'm not saving the world here and it's not brain surgery, just making clothes. <laughs> you got to do what you love. That's true. I think everybody needs to have purpose. And that's something very similar to what I say to people here at work that, you know, you have to have a purpose and you need to understand what you're there for.
0: Absolutely. Well, thank you, Anna, so much for joining us on the Lady Brains podcast. I know it was a long time coming and um, we really appreciate you sharing your story. No, thanks for having me.